come now to oral questions. The first in the name of the Honourable James Shaw. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, my question is to the Minister responsible for RMA reform. Uh, what progress, if any, has been made on policy decisions for the proposed fast-track consenting reforms? Mr Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Chris Bishop. A lot. <laughs> Very good. Uh, has, has the list... Has the list of projects that will be contained in the bill that will be first to be approved uh, been decided upon by ministers? No. Uh, were any of the projects that, on, that are on the proposed list proposed to him by the Minister for Resources and Regional Development? Uh, there's a range of proposals that are being proposed. Um, ministers' cabinet uh, will be deciding on the listed projects in the bill uh, in due course, uh, and uh, when the bill is ready to go, uh, that that, minister, that member will be one of the first to know. I did. I just did. I just did. Does the proposed list uh, of listed projects in the bill include any coal mines? Uh, <laughs> the Honourable Tris Bishop. A as I say, there, there are a range of projects that have been proposed and are being proposed, uh, but we are going through a process around the development of the bill now. What I've, what I've outlined to, what I've outlined to uh, the environmental uh, movement what I've outlined to local government and what I've outlined to a range of stakeholders is the broad high-level framework of uh, what Cabinet has agreed and the finer details of the bill are being worked through as we speak. And as the member knows, it's a part of the government's 100-day programme of action, so in due course, not too many sleeps to go, he will find out what the fast-track uh, consenting bill looks like. Well, as part of the process just that the moment, he's just outlined, just a moment, uh, has just, a climate... Just a moment. Don't talk when someone is asking a question. James Shaw, the Honourable James Shaw. As part of the uh, process that he's just outlined to the House, uh, do the projects uh, that are being included in the bill, uh, have, have, has, there, has there been a climate impact assessment been done for those projects? Uh, we're, we're not at the point where that would take place yet. Uh, and ministers will be taking advice about the appropriateness of that in due course. Has he sought assurances that the projects that are being considered for inclusion in the bill are not connected to any people or companies that have made substantial donations to any of the coalition parties? Uh, no, but that member will know from his time as a minister in the previous government uh, that all ministers are subject to Cabinet Act uh, processes around things like he is describing. A point of order, Mr. Speaker, there is a trend in that sort of question to make an allegation without one skerrick of evidence and think if you get away with this house. If that's what that member wants, then he's come to the right place because we're not going to put up with those lies anymore. Speaking to the point of order, no, no, Mr. Speaker. I'm not taking more on that. It was an interesting point of order. Uh, pointing out that there were veiled threats from one side, only for the point of order itself to contain a less than veiled threat. So we'll move on. 
<laughs> Moving on, question number two. Point of order, Mr Speaker. A new point of order? Uh, yes, Mr Speaker. Completely different point of order? Well, <laughs> relating to... Close. It's not a day to come close. Is it you? Mr Speaker, point of order. Point of order. Uh, there has been a lot made in this House over the last few months about the use of the term lying. And in that statement just then from the incoming uh, Deputy Prime Minister, the statement lie was used uh, in relation to the Honourable James Shaw. I'll review it and consider it. Uh, speak to the point of order right on one It is simple. There is a requisite under the electoral law of this country for declarations to be made. Those declarations have been made. Uh, the uh, Electoral Commission has not challenged it, nor has anybody else. So what's happening in this House it has to be that or uh, plain ignorance. Take their choice. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. This is not going anywhere. Uh, James Shaw, do you have another supplementary? I have a new point of order. Point of uh, order. Okay. It's, it's unrelated to try the Try hard and try to be different. No, but I did want to raise the point, um, uh, particularly around uh, speech ruling 24-2, regarding constantly raising trifling points of orders. It's itself disorderly. And the acting Prime Minister um, has in my view, and I'm just asking the Speaker to reflect on the fact that throughout the, the passage of this Parliament, um, I think there's been a constant uh, points of orders that have been raised that I would say are um, within the nature of that, and I'm concerned about what that sets in terms of precedent of trying to raise points of order in a way that it is constructive. Well, thank you for that. We're going now to question two from Tim Costley. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and uh, can I wish you a happy Valentine's Day? I'm sure you are hoping to hear that from me. Um, Good, we'll, to... move now, we'll move now to question three. <laughs> <coughs> like, like so many women in my past. Uh, so, uh, to the Minister of Finance, what recent reports has she seen on government spending? Honourable Nicola Willis. <coughs> Mr Speaker, as I said yesterday, I received Treasury's briefing to the incoming Minister, and it made for sober reading. It told me that core Crown expenses have increased markedly since 2017, peaking at 35% of GDP in the 2021-2022 fiscal year, which is the highest rate in New Zealand in decades. Supplementary. Uh, what has been the change in <coughs> core Crown revenue? Mr Speaker, Treasury's BIM told me that in 2021-2022, core Crown tax revenue was also the highest as a percentage of GDP for many <coughs> years. Not surprising, as personal income tax rates and thresholds have not been adjusted for 14 long years. What have these changes meant for the operating balance? Mr Speaker, the government operating balance is the difference between what the government receives each year and what it spends. Core Crown expenses are higher than Core Crown revenue and have been rising faster, meaning that the government is in deficit. In fact, the government has been in deficit since 2019. Uh, is the government deficit due to COVID? Mr Speaker, a good question. While temporary factors such as COVID and the North Island weather events have certainly contributed to the weak fiscal position, much of the operating deficit is structural, which means the government would still be in deficit even if the economy was operating at its potential. In fact, Treasury's BIM tells me 
that after stripping out large one-off expenditures like COVID and after adjusting for the economic cycle, the government is currently running a structural deficit of around 2% of GDP, largely because of growth in government spending. That is the mess Labor has left us in. Question number three, in the name of the Honourable Carmel Cipollone. Mr Speaker, to the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction, what advice has she received on the likely impact on child poverty of the government's policies? Honourable Louise Upson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The government receives a wide range of advice on the impact on child poverty of policies it implements across the board. Mr Speaker... Yes. How many children will be lifted out of poverty due to the government's changes to the indexation of benefits? Uh, Mr Speaker, there's uh, not one policy that will have a single impact on child poverty. Our government is directly focused, as the previous government was, in lifting the number of children out of poverty. Point of, point of order, Mr Speaker. Point of order, the Honourable Grant Roberts. Mr Speaker, um, the supplementary question that uh, the Minister asked was very specific, and I, and the primary also was on notice. I, I, I don't believe the minister addressed the specific question that the member asked. The old Chris Bishop. Well, the, the opposition might not like the answer, but but the, the minister did address it. She talked about how there is not one way of lifting children out of poverty, which directly, direct well, directly addresses the question from the member. Speaking to that, Mr. Mr. Speaker, uh, the, the point is that the member asked a question about a specific legislative um, amendment that the government is making. Uh, there, there is some obligation, surely, on the member, on the minister, to answer about that, because um, you know we have been urged consistently by previous speakers on both sides of the house to ask specific questions. Um, ones that are not um, political in nature, that was what my colleague did, and the answer she got was a generic response that did not, in my opinion, address that question. That might be your opinion, but if you think about it, the question was about the specific policy. The answer was that the, uh, perhaps the, the Minister could have put the words in, uh, that's a wrong assumption, or some other such, but it was about the fact that, in the Minister's view, uh, just like the questioner has a view, there isn't one policy that answers it. Sorry, Mr. Speaker, the point, but that wasn't the question. The question wasn't, is there one policy? It was, what does this particular policy contribute? Those are actually materially two different questions, well, and the are. question that They're the member asked has okay. not been answered. Good. Would the minister like to answer in a different way? Uh, the member asks a question about child poverty and there will be a number of policies, including indexation, that our government will put in place to reduce child poverty. Mr Speaker, did she receive the preliminary modelling showing that indexing main benefits to inflation leads to an estimated increase in the number of children in poverty over the forecast period? Uh, Mr Speaker, there will be a number of forecasts that we look at um, around policies uh, in a range of portfolios across the government that we are absolutely focused on reducing child poverty, as, including reducing the cost of living, growing the economy, 
uh, improving attendance at school and preventing un, uh, preventable hospitalisations Point of children. order, Mr Speaker. Point of order, the Honourable Carmel And Mr Speaker, given that the bill I'm referring to is currently going through the House in urgency and the preliminary modelling is attached to that bill and the supplementary analysis, I expect a straight answer and I do not feel like that minister has responded adequately to the question. Yes, well, the difference between your expectations and what you feel about an answer doesn't necessarily uh, mean that the answer hasn't been given. It certainly question has been certainly addressed. Point of order, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, the difficulty with that approach is that there is not an unlimited pool of supplementary questions. And so in the House, we allocated a certain number of supplementary questions, and therefore we have to use them in a way to extract the information. When a member asks a question, did a minister receive a particular piece of advice, that is an attempt to ask a specific enough question that it will get a specific enough answer. If we had an unlimited number of supplementaries, we could go down the path yeah, you're going. What, tell you what, I fully understand your point of order. Um, I'm not saying I'd be the original author of it, but it's certainly been used in this House before. Uh, to move us on, would the Minister uh, uh, like to answer the question in another way again? Uh, the one individual piece of legislation that is before the Parliament at the moment, uh, the figure is 7,000. Uh, our government is absolutely focused on reducing the number of children living in poverty, and one of the areas we'll focus on is reducing the number of children in benefit-dependent home that blew out under yeah, that before government. Before you go any further, the, the question was about uh, receiving some advice. Did you receive some advice? Yeah, and I told her the figure. Okay. Mr Speaker, what advice has she received on her government's broader policies' ability to mitigate the forecasted risk of an estimated increase of 7,000 children under the AHC50 poverty measure and an estimated increase of 7,000 children under the BHC50 poverty measure due to the change in indexation? Uh, Mr Speaker, I I'm trying to make it um, simple to, to get an answer. So one piece of legislation one policy of multiple that this side of the House will be focused on in terms of improving uh, child poverty reduction. Uh, and this is one measure that has an impact of a, a suite of policies around the cost of living crisis um, that we are focusing on. So th this is one of many. Mr Speaker. What advice has she received about her government's intention to set targets for the number of beneficiaries with respect to perverse intentions that may be created in the system and the possible impact on child poverty? Yeah, I think we might have that question again, a yeah. little more slowly. Maybe I'll cut it back, Mr Speaker. Yeah. What advice has she received about her government's intention to set targets for the number of beneficiaries and the possible, possible impact on child poverty? I've been clear about my priority about reducing the number of children in benefit-dependent homes, uh, and there will be a range of advice that's coming to support that end. I'm open about it. Mr Speaker, is her government committed to the child poverty reduction targets enshrined in legislation? And if yes, is she expecting to meet the targets? Uh, Mr Speaker, just to put on record, the previous government was not on track to meet the targets. Uh, we supported the legislation when it was introduced. We're not making changes to the legislation. And our government will work incredibly hard 
to lift children out of poverty. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Yes, point of order, Kamal I didn't ask about the government's track record. It was a very straight question about commitment to the enshrined targets in legislation and whether she expects to meet them, that her government expects well, to look, meet that them. That explanation probably explains what the question was about, but I ask you to repeat it because I couldn't quite follow what you were asking either. So I think we'll move on. If you've got another supplementary, try that. Well, I'll give you an extra one to see if you feel better. An extra question? Yeah. Does she agree with the Member of Parliament, Polo Garcia, that there is dignity in poverty? Uh, Mr Speaker, um, this side of the House is very clear that we need to lift children out of benefit-dependent homes to give them the shot at a great future that they deserve in New Zealand. Currently, 60% of the children in material hardship are in benefit-dependent homes. There is no dignity in them having poor or worse outcomes because of the family circumstances they were brought in. Thank you. Question number four, Dr Palmjeet Palmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Associate Minister of Justice responsible for Treaty Principles Bill. Why is the government introducing a Treaty Principles Bill? The Honourable David Seymour. Uh, well, thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, Mr Speaker, next year it will be half a decade since this House passed the Treaty of Waitangi Act, saying that there was such a thing as the principles of the treaty. Since that time, Parliament has been silent about their definition, while the courts, the Waitangi Tribunal, the Public Service and many others have had their say. The act, the, this government is introducing a Treaty Principles Bill to democratise that process of defining the treaty principles, because for the first time through this representative House of Parliament, all New Zealanders will have a say about what our founding document and our constitutional future means. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. How will the Treaty Principles Bill honour the treaty? Mr Speaker, the Treaty of Waitangi, or Te Tiriti of Waitangi, as our founding document, is enormously important to our past, but also to our future and our conception of ourselves as a country. The fact that it has been interpreted through a lens of principles upon which most New Zealanders have had not a chance to have any influence or say, I believe has diminished its mana and made it a source of division when it should be a source of unity. The Treaty Principles Bill and the debate surrounding it is designed to enhance the mana of Te Tiriti and ensure that all New Zealanders believe they are invested in its principles. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Supplementary. Will the Treaty Principles Bill abolish or rewrite the treaty like some people have claimed? Mr Speaker, absolutely not. Uh, it is some people who I believe have been mischievous and misinforming the public. And I heard Willie Jackson, as if on cue, say who? I think he could answer that question for himself. Mr Speaker, some mischievous people have made false claims. It is impossible to abolish the treaty. What we are doing is democratising the process of defining its principles, uh, which have been going on for the last 50 years almost, 
but without the vast majority of New Zealanders having any kind of input or say into it. This will enhance the treaty. It certainly will not rewrite the treaty itself, let alone get rid of it. It will simply democratise the, de the definition of its principles. Good. The uh, Honourable Willie Jackson. Mr Speaker, to the Minister, who is right, the Prime Minister, who has said the Treaty Principles Bill was divisive and unhelpful, or the ACT Party, who think it's all about freedom at the expense of Māori? Well, the Treaty Principles Bill does have the potential uh, to be uh, divisive, particularly when certain leaders in Māoridom who should know better uh, threaten violence and uprisings instead of actually engaging in a democratic debate. So in that sense, uh, the Prime Minister is absolutely right. And when it comes to the characterisation of my statements, uh, I don't believe that this debate uh, does come at the expense uh, of Māori. Uh, so I actually can't agree with my own statement because that minister has, member has completely mischaracterised it yeah, and misrepresenting other people's views is a major problem in any public debate. I hope that member will stop doing it. Supplementary. Willie Jackson. Mr Speaker, to the minister, which um, iwi are supporting the bill uh, is it Ngāti Whātua, Tainui, um, or his own tribe, Ngāti Rehia? And what feedback has he got in terms of support for the bill? Well, Mr Speaker, I've heard uh, support for the bill uh, from people up and down this country, and those people are Māori, they're non-Māori, they're old, they're young, they're from north, they're from south, they're from down, they're from town, they're from country. Uh, there is widespread support uh, for the idea. In fact, the member may have seen uh, opinion polling by Curia, which found 60% of New Zealanders support the principles in the bill, 18% oppose it, and maybe uh, it's time for the member to get on board. Dr. Palmer. What does he say to people who claim the treaty principles bill is an attack on Maori? Oh, well, that's an excellent and well-timed question because there are clearly people who would like to make the Treaty Principles Bill uh, a debate between races. People that say that have bought in to the fetish of racial identity that is our race, it is our ethnicity, it is our background and ancestry that defines us more than anything else. But the truth is, Mr Speaker, that there are Māori who agree with this particular kaupapa, there are Māori who disagree, there are non-Māori who agree, there are non-Māori uh, who agree. And I think we just saw an example of that right now because people won't be able to see but off-screen, Rawiri Waititi is saying, who? Who are these Māori who agree? Nicole McKee sitting beside him, and she said, me. And I think that sums up this debate perfectly well. And I think Rawiri Waititi, my message for you is keep heckling, brother, because you help more than you realise. <laughs> right. Uh, supplementary? No, it's a point of order. A point of order. Uh, Mr Speaker, I just want to seek confirmation from you, uh, based on some comments that uh, various ministers have made outside of the House, that it, the standing orders and the conventions of this House continue to apply, that an answer that a minister gives in the House to a question from any member is an answer on behalf of the entirety of the government, not just that member's party. Uh, that, well, I'm going to go back and have a look at what the arrangements were uh, between 2002 and 2005. 
uh, where there were different, different uh, arrangements for ministers inside one government. Uh, and I'll come back to you on that. Point of order, Mr Speaker. It, it has always been the case under every confidence and supply or coalition agreement that where a minister is speaking as a minister in the House, but which clearly at question time they are answering questions as a minister, that they speak on behalf of the entire government and are therefore bound by cabinet collective responsibility, which therefore means they speak on behalf of the whole government. Now, we've had some suggestion from ministers that that is not what is happening. That would be a departure from all of the rules, practices, protocols and conventions of this House that no previous government has made. When David Seymour delivers those answers, I want to be clear from you that he is delivering them in accordance with every convention of this House on behalf of the whole of the government. Yeah, well, you're not going to get that now, because between also 1999 and 2002, where there was a significant meltdown in government arrangements at that time, there were various conventions put in place for the answering of questions by, by people who were ministers inside a government, but representing a multitude of parties outside it. I want to go back and have a look at that and to see where exactly uh, we're at. Indicating that there has been a breakdown of the government. No, I'm not. <laughs> that is not a helpful comment, and uh, I would ask the uh, very experienced Member of Parliament not to trifle with the Chair. Honourable David Seymour. I, I may be able to assist uh, e every... Well, you know, you do these things at your peril, but where you go. <laughs> Uh, Mr Speaker, I may be able to help the member. Uh, every answer I have given is as the minister responsible around the intentions behind the kaupapa that I'm bringing on behalf of the government. Uh, I have not portrayed myself... That's enough. No, one second. I have not portrayed myself no, as enough. representing any cabinet decision. Honourable... Uh, sorry. Thank you. The Honourable Member. I, I like your matakite tanga, Mr. Speaker. Uh, given the Associate Minister of Justice has become an expert in Tiriti Waitangi, can you tell me how many Māori chiefs signed Tiriti Waitangi? Uh, well, first of all, it's approximately 500, but learning is a journey, and I expect to learn more. Perhaps the member would like to come on this kopapa with me. Supplementary. Has he spoken to both sides of the treaty in regards to this bill? That's to Iwi Māori and also King Charles. Well, uh, as we know, uh, our King is uh, laid up with a few medical challenges uh, at the moment. Uh, thankfully, there are many people, uh, the Māori people of New Zealand, uh, who are in very good health and I'd be very happy to speak to them uh, every day. Question, question number five, the Honourable Marama Davidson. E te pika ki te reo Māori, e te pika ki te primia. Ka pūmauia ki tāna kōrero, our focus is on making sure we honour the treaty. Mena ai, ka pēhia tā tōna kāwanatanga whakahonore i te tiriti. Uh, right on Winston Peters. Yes, our unrelenting focus is on raising achievement and opportunity for Māori and non-Māori alike.
after both have gone backwards during the disastrous past three years of non-achievement from the government, the part, members' party was nominally a part of, and if those members there looked around their own people, they'd know exactly and precisely what I'm talking about. Right. Okay. I know where you came from, and that uh, was a great answer up until the point where there was the attack on the previous well, government. Well, they chipped me. They started chipping me. Well, that, you can assert that There's anywhere you like, but you can't assert it during question time. Uh, Marama Davidson. Kei te whakai ia, ka whakahanga i ngā mea nei a te akawhaiora, te taraipunara o Waitangi, me te tekiona 7AA o te ture oranga tamariki, Ki te whakahonore te tiriti, wai hoki ka whakatika hia ngā tiriti takahitanga e te karauna, mena kao, heha ai. Uh, can I say to that rather confusing question that there is no statement from this government or any member of it of getting rid of the Treaty of Waitangi. Anybody else that says otherwise is uh, spreading malice, a forethought, and we're not going to tolerate it. Secondly, we're going to stand behind the treaty we always have. But what we won't do is have this unmandated, unelected, uh, ju uh, judicial, woke concoction that that member seeks to subscribe to, which wasn't supported by the greatest scholar ever come to this house on this matter, Sir Apanangata. He's our authority. Watch yours. Maro Davidson. He matatika kiaia ki te whakamatetia, tapahia te pūtea, me whakakorekoretia i aua kaupapa, e hangana ki te whakahonore i te tiriti, a ka auaha i ngā pūtanga pai mā ngai Māori. Again, Mr Speaker, the Arab response to that is an extraordinary confusing allegation being made talking about a multitude of product, uh, uh, projects, none of which help ordinary Māori. They're based on the elite Māori in this country who never consult with their own people. And out there in New Zealand, the mass majority of Māori have proven that by not even being on the Māori roll so subscribed to by that member. Ki tōna whakaro, ka whai te whakareretanga a ngā kāwanatanga national kua pahure, kua whakahāngai i ngā mea nei a kohangareo, te taraipunara o Waitangi, ngā whakataunga tiriti, me te ture mō te reo Māori, mena ai, ka pēhia. Again, Mr Speaker, this is misinformation of the worst sort, contacted uh, by way of a question. The reality is, Kohanga Royal was started by the National Party. Does that member not know it? No. I know. No, no. What was going on here is the allegation that we're going to stop it. That's false. And as for all the treaty settlements, this government is going to go on honouring Mr Prime Minister and every member has said so. But what we're not going to do is see unmandated, unelected and therefore unauthorised by the New Zealand people this woke concoction that the Green Party and this party of this subscribe to. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Uh, I, I am happy to repeat the question again and slowly for the member's benefit, because uh, he is accusing Where have you done my question. No, sorry, that's not going to happen. Um, the, do you have the, another supplementary? I do. Please carry on with that. Sorry, can I get an answer point of order? The member seemed to completely misunderstand no, my no, question. No, no, that's not, that's okay. not a question. It's not reasonable. 
he pātai tūhono. Heaha ia i maumau wā me moni ai ki te Treaty Principles Bill mena e meana ia dead duck walking. At no point in time have I ever said that it's a dead duck walking. Mind you, I've seen something that looks similar. But the point of the matter is, the ACT Party had negotiations with the National Party. Their subscribers and supporters are entitled for them to honour their campaign promises. And that's why Mr Seymour can come to this House with an agreed statement on behalf of everybody on the side of the House, and it's in the coalition agreement. But the statement that we're getting rid of the Treaty of Waitangi is categorically false. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Can I seek clarity on whether the Minister is speaking as the Prime Minister or as himself? The quote was to the Prime Minister. I, I don't think that matters. His answer was as the Prime Minister. Okay. Come now to question number <laughs> six. Uh, in the name of Dr Vanessa Winnick. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Social Development and Employment. What reports has she seen on the predicted and actual amount of time people spend in receipt of benefit payments? Honourable Louise Upson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Social Outcomes Modelling commissioned by the Ministry of Social Development shows the amount of time New Zealanders are predicted to spend on benefits throughout their lifetime has substantially increased. Recipients of the Job Seeker Work Ready benefit are now expected to spend on average 13 years um, of the future on a benefit, an increase of almost four years compared to 2017. The modelling estimated that 626,000 New Zealanders who received a benefit in the last year would collectively require another 6.43 million years of income support. Supplementary, A point of order, Dr Oshelville. Uh, Mr Speaker, this is a question on uh, notice from a member of the Minister's own uh, party. And, yet, and it's quite clear that the question asks predicted and actual, and yet all of the answer detailed the results of modelling and expectations and not figures that relate to the real world experience. Yeah, yeah I disagree. Uh, <laughs> supplementary, supplementary? Uh, yes. Dr Vanessa Wiener. <laughs> uh, what does this modelling show about the length of time young people are predicted to spend on benefit? In 2017, the modelling showed teenagers who went on to the youth payment or young parent payment were expected to spend 15.2 future years reliant on a benefit in their lifetime. By 2022, teenagers who go on to welfare were expected to spend, on average, 24 years relying on a benefit, a staggering nine-year extra years of their lives on welfare. That didn't seem to ring any bells of alarm for the previous government, but the increase in benefit dependency that occurred under the watch of the previous Labor government is of real concern to us. What did the modelling associated report say about the impact of people being reliant on benefit for longer? While the report said one consequence would be additional costs to the taxpayer of expenditure on benefit payments, I was most concerned that those trapped on welfare for longer would face profound impacts on their future earnings and life satisfaction and have more contact with police and mental health services than they otherwise would. 
government comfortable with the trend of people spending longer periods of time on welfare as identified by the social outcomes modelling? No, absolutely not. With a report showing worse life outcomes for those trapped on welfare long term, it is cruel to stand by and allow these people's potential to be wasted. We believe that New Zealanders deserve the opportunities and choices that come from employment. That starts with a government that understands, as this government does, the importance of breaking vicious cycles of dependency. Come now to question number seven, in the name of the Honourable Grant Roberts. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance. What is the complete list of adjustments and exclusions that have been made to the eligible baseline of expenditure that are subject to the 6.5% or 7.5% savings that have been sought from public service agencies? Mr Speaker. The much-needed savings programme underway as part of Budget 2024 requires agencies to put forward options for 6.5% or 7.5% savings from an eligible baseline calculated by Treasury. As I have previously explained to the House, the eligible baseline had some exclusions when it was calculated, including the non-departmental spending of health, education and ministry of disabled people, Kaha. I have also previously confirmed to the member that benefits are not included in the eligible baseline. Mr Speaker, there is a very long list of exclusions to the eligible baseline, and many of them are exactly the same as the member's own savings exercise from last year. The list is much too long for me to read out in full, but I am happy to table it, if the House permits, before I do so. I would note for the member that the eligible baseline does not necessarily indicate where savings proposals will come from. Mr Speaker, I seek leave to table a document. Is there any objection to that? Appears to be none. So I've mentioned, Mr Speaker, uh, has spending on the defence estate been excluded from the eligible baseline of expenditure? Uh, Mr Speaker, there have been a number of uh, exclusions made from the eligible baseline, some of which are agency specific. No, no, no. I addressed it. Uh, the Honourable Chris, right Honourable Chris Sipkins. The member just said that she was tabling a list. I She's asked if something was on the list. She hasn't even got anywhere near to addressing it. Uh, uh, Mr Speaker, Lawrence. I'm very happy to help out um, Mr Hipkins. The, the, list, the list which I am tabling and which perhaps members would like to read specifically notes other agency-specific exclusions. Um, Supplementary question, Mr Speaker. Is the defence estate one of those agency-specific exclusions? Mr Speaker, I am releasing a full list of the general exclusions that apply in the majority of cases, and I am noting that there are also other agency-specific exclusions. Now, the member clearly is very interested in this savings exercise, and what I would remind that member is that he too initiated a savings exercise Speaker, in August. Yeah. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Point, point of order, right over Chris Hopkins. We've now had two very specific questions that the Minister's refused to answer. Having refused to answer them, uh, to then go on and attack the person who's asking the question steps well outside of all of the rules of this House. Right. Yeah. I just ask the uh, Minister to 
uh, address the question that, that was asked, which is, is the defence of state expenditure part of the agency, other agency exclusions? Mr Speaker, as I said to the member in answer to my primary question, baselines have been calculated in order to create a quantum of saving target that does not indicate where savings will come from. There is a long list of generic exemptions and in addition there have been agency specific exclusions. Can she guarantee that work on the defence estate will not be subject to a 6.5 or 7.5 per cent cut? Mr Speaker, uh, defence have been asked to foot put forward proposals to achieve a baseline reduction. Our guidance to defence has been that we recognise they face significant cost pressures and as such, we do expect them to, uh, we have in fact invited them uh, to submit what uh, costs that they may need met in this budget. In addition, just like with all other agencies, we have asked them to focus on low value programs, programs that don't align with the new coalition government's priorities and non-essential back office functions, including contractor and consultant spend. I would note to the member, as I have many, many times now, uh, that proposals are yet to be considered by ministers and all decisions will be made by ministers. Supplementary. Is the minister... Supplementary, uh, Stuart Smith. Thank you, Mr Speaker. What is the purpose of the savings exercise? Mr Speaker, the government is requiring public agencies to find permanent savings, including through cutting back on contractors, trimming back some programs and taking back underspends. It is clear, given the economic conditions, that we need this work to happen more than ever. Members opposite who cry out at this may wish to know that I've just quoted from the Honourable Member's own press statement of 28 August 2023, in which he announced his own... A point of order, right on Chris Hopkins. Mr Speaker, given the Minister persistently refuses to answer the questions being asked by the opposition, for her then to have a government patsy question which she then uses to attack the opposition, means that she's repeatedly falling foul of all of the rules of this House. I wonder if you would consider, given that this is a relatively consistent pattern from the Minister of Finance, whether in fact there should be some sanction applied to that. For example, the number of supplementary questions that have been effectively wasted to not get an answer should be credited back to the opposition on a future day. Well, there's a couple of points I'd make. Firstly is, um, while, while members will ask questions and, and may not like the answers that are coming, I think in the end uh, the explanation given to by the uh, Minister of Finance uh, was quite reasonable. I took it as, as being so. Uh, with regards to the um, question that was set up, I have made it clear that uh, questions should not be used to attack the government. I'm not sure how quoting a previous minister is an attack on the opposition. But I will have another look at this, obviously, as, uh, as we progress through the day. Supplementary. Sup supplementary. Oh, he can have uh, another go. Are you yielding? Supplementary, uh, the Honourable Grant Robertson. Speaker, is the minister aware that even if she sacked every person who does work on policy, communications and cancelled all the publicity work of the Department of Conservation, she would be tens of millions of dollars short of the target for cuts that she has set for that agency. Mr Speaker, as I have said many times to the member, 
We have asked agencies to look for savings across a number of categories, including programs that are not delivering maximum value, including programs that aren't delivering results. Those proposals will be considered by ministers in full. And one of the great things about our savings exercise, Mr Speaker, is that we're actually going to complete it, unlike the former minister. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. What does the list... Wait on, wait on. Noise on both sides, Mr Bishop. What does the list that the minister has just tabled show about where the savings will come from? Mr Speaker, the member asks a very good question. The list of exclusions I have tabled does not indicate where savings will come from because agencies can put forward savings options from wherever they wish to. We've asked chief executives to exercise good judgment in putting savings options up to ministers and we've also asked that staff are able to put forward ideas. It is ministers who will make the final decisions on whether savings options progress as part of Budget 2024. We will have a firm focus on shifting resource from the back office to frontline services in line with our commitment to New Zealanders to stop wasteful spending, improve value for money and drive resources into the front line. Supplementary. The Honourable Grant Robertson. Can she guarantee that no frontline services provided by the Department of Conservation will be cut as a result of the savings exercise? Mr Speaker, I am yet to even see the proposals from the Department of Conservation. Question number nine, Jamie Arbuckle. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister, does he stand by all his statements and actions? Yes, in the context in which they were made and taken, and whilst the evidence supporting those actions and statements remains the same. Supplementary. Does he stand by the Coalition's actions to restore law and order and personal responsibility? Uh, Mr Speaker, well, where do we start? We're doing so many good things that it's hard to keep track. We are committed to train an extra 500 frontline police in the next two years. We're going to address youth offending by increasing... Big pardon? Oh, well, catch up and be at Parliament. That was decided about two weeks ago. Try and catch up. Yeah, two weeks ago. You know, it's not too difficult. Nothing else to do. Sitting in the opposition. No record of doing anything in her whole career. And she wants to know, will somebody tell her as she's on the front bench? Now, we're going to address youth offending by increasing the number of youth aid officers over the term. We'll adequately resource community policing, including Māori and Pacifica wardens, community patrol and neighbourhood watch. And we'll protect first responders and prison officers by introducing legislation with specific offences for assaults on our police, firefighters, prison officers and ambulance officers and a whole lot more desperately out there needed by the New Zealand society. Does he stand by the Coalition's actions to deliver better public services? Oh, oh. Most definitely. The focus has strayed too far towards wokeism and not on better education and health outcomes. We have already started doing basics better through emphasising reading, writing and maths and banning cell phones in schools. If they doubt that matter about education, a former Labor minister, none other than Richard Preble, was pointing out how hopeless their performance was in the last three years, where 55% and more of Māori are not even at school. And how can we possibly get our nation ready 
let alone those young people ready for the future with such grave irresponsibility and seeing that compulsory education has been around since 1877, maybe again they should catch up. Supplementary. Labor Preble. Does he stand... Oh, wait. Does he stand by the coalition's actions for an independent COVID inquiry? Oh, yes. uh, most definitely. We're, we're in the early days, but we are seeking feedback from the people on expanding the terms of reference on the current Royal Commission of Inquiry. It's preposterous that the government was in, that was in charge of the original inquiry and went to set out their own terms of reference of an inquiry into their own decisions. In short, setting up an inquiry to cover one's derriere is not in the public interest, and we're going to fix it up. Supplementary. Does he stand by the Coalition's actions to keep the superannuation age of eligibility at 65? Oh, definitely. Uh, can I say that's a superb question? And out there there's about 895,000 people who need to know that and a whole lot more coming up to 65 years of age. And given the GDP, given the ratio against the GDP, which is way better than most developed nations, yes, we are going to keep it at 65. On that, you've had our long... 40-year province. Thank you. Um, right Honourable uh, Chris Hipkins. Just, just want to confirm. Uh, similar to the previous point of order I raised, that the Right Honourable Winston Peters was speaking there as Prime Minister and therefore all of the answers that he delivered were as Prime Minister. Yep. yep. <laughs> I was responding to the coalition agreement. We made sure it's in the coalition agreement. No, that's the point. Yeah. Good. Question 10, Dr Chaville. Question 9, sorry. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Health and asks, does he stand by all his statements and actions? Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yes, in the, con in the context that they were given. Does he agree with Shane Retty, who said, in the primary care sector, it's really hard to see a general practitioner any time soon? And if so, will he include access to primary care as one of the five major health targets in the coalition agreements? Very good question. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm not in a position to discuss uh, budget-sensitive positions, but I do agree that it is hard to see primary care. Does he agree with Shane Retty that this government will take actions to improve the health outcomes for all, health outcomes for all New Zealanders? And if so, will he make surviving cancer a health target? Uh, to the uh, first arm of her question, yes. Will he commit to preventing the gaming of targets, such as the practice of admitting emergency department patients to non-existent virtual wards so that the six-hour target can be met? Yeah. Uh, Mr Speaker, I commit to keeping a very close eye on the gaming of any targets that we might announce. <laughs> If a patient dies three hours after arriving in the emergency department, has the six-hour target been met in their case? And if so, is this the better health outcome he's promoting for oh, New Zealand? Mr. Mr Speaker, we're, we're still to confirm what our, our targets will be, including emergency department targets. Question number 10, the name of Debbie Nauru-Wapaka. Uh, my question is to the Minister for Social Development and Employment. Does she stand by all of her statements and policies? Yes. Supplementary. 
What evidence does she have that the sanctions on beneficiaries will help get more people into employment? Uh, the empirical evidence that says the number on job seeker benefit has gone up by 76,000 when there's been a 50% reduction in the number of sanctions applied in the last six years. Point of order. Point of order. Ricardo, when do you smash? Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, the question was not addressed. I mean, th there was a specific uh, question around empirical evidence, and then she talked about number of people on the benefit. Sorry, the, the question was relating to evidence on sanctions, and she just spoke on something completely unrelated, which is just people on the yeah, job seeker benefit. Those two things are not related to one another. Yeah, it's the same problem that everyone has. When a question is asked, the answer won't always be satisfactory. However, the question was addressed. Supplementary. How will the government get job seekers into work? Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker, and I thank the member for their question because I know that um, many are worried about the number of people who have been on job seeker benefit and stuck there for years. Uh, there's a range of things that we will do. Uh, our welfare that works policy is the first one we will roll out because of the significant increase in the young people under 25. Uh, individuals will get a needs assessment, uh, there'll be a job coach, we want to work with community providers, um, and I've already been talking to iwi organisations who may well be interested in providing that service, um, and there will be a carrot and stick approach to ensure that young people who can work do. How many tamariki would be impacted by sanctions if the traffic light system were in place today? Uh, Mr Speaker, thank you for that question. Uh, one of the elements that is a significant change in the traffic light system that's proposed um, are non-financial sanctions. Um, I have been concerned, as others, uh, that there have been financial sanctions where there has been a household with children. So the deliberate design is to come up with non-financial sanctions to prevent that from occurring. Supplementary. How will, the how will the Ministry assist children whose parents have had their benefits cut? Uh, Mr Speaker, as I said in my last uh, answer, part of the traffic light system is the introduction of non-financial sanctions. Um, the the frontline uh, staff who work at Work and Income work incredibly hard to ensure that people do comply with their obligations, uh, and we're looking at fairly simple obligations if you're a job seeker to uh, have a CV, apply for jobs, turn up to a job interview and, and accept a job that is offered. Uh, it, is, it is really important for the tamariki in those families that they do have a parent in work. Supplementary. Yep. What benefit security is in place for people with disabilities and long-term medical conditions to ensure they can live with dignity without having uh, to continually prove their medical condition to the government under the threat of being sanctioned? Uh, Mr Speaker, um, much of what I've spoken about in terms of the traffic light system uh, for obligations around job seekers. Um, I appreciate that we must always have a welfare system that supports those uh, who have permanent disabilities that are on the supported living payment, for example. But I also accept that there will be some um, who wish to work in some capacity, and we should support them in doing that. Come now to question number 11, in the name of Tangi Itakiri. Kia orana, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Transport. Does he stand by all his statements and actions? Honourable Simeon Brown. Mr Speaker, 
uh, yes, particularly when I said that this government will not tax Aucklanders an additional 11.5 cents per litre of fuel to fund more cycle lanes, red light cameras, speed humps and lowering speed limits across the city. Supplementary. Why does he still stand by that government decision to axe the regional fuel tax, a decision that has required Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown to stop work on multiple projects that are funded by that tax? Well, that's a very excellent question, and it's because on this side of the House, we're not going to tax Aucklanders an extra 11.5 cents per litre to fund wasteful projects like $500,000 speed bumps, lowering speed limits across the city, red light cameras and cycle lanes. We're actually going to make sure we get the infrastructure delivered that New Zealanders and Aucklanders need. Supplementary, uh, we'll go with uh, Tangi Utakiri and, and we'll get there, don't worry. Tangi Utakiri. Point of order, sorry, I thought it was a question. Point of order, uh, the Minister referenced a $500,000 speed bump and I would invite the Minister to table any evidence of any speed bump anywhere in the country costing anywhere near $500,000. That's, um, uh, hang on. Speaking, speaking to on. the point of order. Well, okay, speak to the point of order. Oh, I, I, I may have misspoken. Uh, it was a four hundred, a four hundred, a four hundred, a four hundred and ninety thousand dollar speed bump, uh, which um, had one hundred and seventy-two thousand dollars of traffic management uh, to construct. I'm happy to table the New Zealand Herald article right here. We'll just, um, okay, we'll all, we'll all come down and and listen to the question from Tangi Utakiri. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Who is correct? Simeon Brown, when he said, the reality is projects can still be funded by Auckland Council and Auckland Transport, they just won't be receiving a regional fuel tax in order to fund. Or Wayne Brown, when he said, the government's announcement therefore creates significant funding uncertainty for a large portion of Auckland Transport's capital programme. Well, this government will be ensuring that the remaining regional fuel tax revenues, over $300 million, which is two years' worth of collection of Aucklanders, will go into delivering the priority projects such as the Eastern Busway, uh, City Rail Link, electric trains and local roading projects. But what we won't be spending money on and won't be taxing Aucklanders more for is wasteful projects which aren't priorities of this government. How is threatening to legislate any time a mayor makes a decision that the minister disagrees with, in line with allowing councils to make their own decisions in the best interests of their ratepayers? Well, that's, that is, uh, I completely reject the premise around threatening. We've sat down and we've discussed the priority projects, and I, the legislation we are putting to this parliament will ensure, will ensure that the remaining revenues, over two years' worth of tax revenue taken from Auckland motorists, go towards those priority projects. <laughs> what does he say to National MP Simeon Brown, who said that the Eastern Busway was the first thing he thinks of in the morning, the last thing at night, and is in his thoughts probably 100 times a day in between? Or to National MP Erica Stanford, who led a petition to secure funding for the Glenvale Road East Coast Road realignment project now that the full completion of those projects have been sent to the scrap heap. Well, Mr Speaker, what I say to, uh, to those uh, members is that those pro projects will be prioritised for the remaining funds 
uh, that the revenues which have not been spent but have been collected from Auckland taxpayers will be prioritised to those projects. But I'll also say to uh, the, uh, the mem member Simeon Brown, uh, I wish the Eastern Busway a happy Valentine's Day. Uh, Helen White. Thank you. How can the Minister justify creating a $1.2 billion shortfall in the plan to decongest Auckland over the next four years when congestion will cost us about $5 billion in productivity in the same period? Well, as I said to the House yesterday, it's the last net government, it's the last government which caused the congestion in Auckland. $228 million on consultancy reports for light rail and didn't even deliver a business case. The six wasted years in Auckland failing to deliver the infrastructure that we needed. Uh, right Honourable Winston Peters. Can I ask the Minister has to the so-called 1.2 billion shortfall. How does it compare with the 29 billion that was going to be assigned to light rail in Auckland? Well, that last government spent hundreds of millions on consultancy reports and business cases, but failed to actually deliver and had no plan to deliver their phantom yep. ghost train well, down Dominion Road. That's enough. Yeah, I know what your point of order is. The question was, though, for a comparison, and you got it. But so point, of order, Mr. Speaker. point of order, Mr. Point of order. The, 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 the fact here is that you have made a ruling, a clarification to the House at the start of question time today, and pulling up members at the end of their answer when your ruling was talking about the start of their answer, I don't think is following what you told us at the start. Well, thank you. I'll try and follow my own advice from here on. We'll go to Cameron Brewer, question 12. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Justice and asks... How much government funding has been devoted to Section 27 reports since 2017, and what actions is the government taking to address it? Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. I'm advised by officials that since 2017, $26.3 million of taxpayer funding was spent on crafting Section 27 reports designed to encourage uh, lighter sentences. Last week the government announced our plan to end taxpayer funding of those reports and to put an end to a thriving industry that the previous government left untouched. Supplementary. Is the government scrapping cultural reports entirely? Uh, no, Mr Speaker. Despite the assertions made uh, on the other side of the House, the government has been very clear that offenders can continue to use Section 27 by asking someone to speak in court or by providing a written station. Section 27 has not been scrapped. Taxpayer funding of professional report writing is. Supplementary. Supplementary. Dr uh, Duncan Webb. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will the Minister implement the promises set out in the National Party's Real Consequences for Crime document, which states... Ending taxpayer funding for written cultural reports is expected to save around $20 million over four years. National will direct all of this funding towards victim support services, which represents an increase of 29%. If not, what increases in funding for victims will the Minister commit to? Well, thank you, Mr Speaker. We are committed to providing more support to the victims of crime in the justice system, and we're working with officials to assess the best options for supporting victims through the savings generated. Yep. That was a very clear question, which was, will he commit to increasing funding for victims for crime? Good. And we'll he didn't address it. 
Well, I address that question. Yes, we are committed to in, uh, providing more support for victims of crime. Supplementary. Cameron Brooke. Why is it important that taxpayer funding of Section 27 reports ends? Well, because there is a great deal of pressure on the legal aid budget and we need to spend our money wisely. Supplementary Duncan Webb. Will he increase grants for victims of crime to access support services such as mental health assistance, counselling or help with travel costs to court cases or hearings, as set out in the National Party Real Consequences for Crime document, or is that just another broken promise by National? A bit early for that, Mr Speaker. We will work with officials, as I said, to assess the best option for supporting victims of crime. But one of the best things we can do, of course, is to speed up the processes of the court so they're not waiting years and years like they have over the past six years to get a resolution to the the uh, cases that they're facing to get on with their lives, and that's the best thing we can do. Supplementary. Is the Minister aware of any notable Section 27 report authors who have received taxpayer funding? Well, members might be interested to know that the cultural report provider Hard to Reach, headed by lifetime mongrel mob member Harry Tam, boasts on its website that offenders, quote, have received sentence discounts of up to 35% because of factors raised in our reports. Supplementary. What other changes does the government intend to make in regard to the Sentencing Act? Well, the government is committed to wider changes to sentencing laws to restore real consequences for crime. That includes capping sentence discounts at 40 per cent. And my colleague, Mr Minister McKee, is leading work to reinstate three strikes legislation. That uh, concludes oral questions for the day.